We are on week three tonight, uh, and I'm calling this one Anglican Worship and the Mass, um, because these two things really are at the center of our life together, worship, um, more generally speaking, but the pinnacle of all Christian worship is the Mass. So I think uh, it's important that we spend some time talking about that. Also hard to believe it's week three, so that means we're about halfway through, um, so about three more weeks to go, plus there will be an instructed Eucharist um, the week after the class ends. Um, But I think it's important. Well, first of all, I love the picture. Um, It's, uh, I think I mentioned last week, the sort of Anglo-Catholic art uh, from the 20th century where it kind of unveils what's happening in the mass for us. And so you see here, the cross is made present as the priest says the mass. And I think that's a really succinct picture of everything that we do as far as what uh, what the purpose is, um, is to make the cross present for us. Now, if you think about modern Western culture, um, pretty much since the Enlightenment, so 17th century, uh, we emphasize the mind a lot more than we do anything else, right? Um, you can think of, uh, of Descartes saying, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. So what is the sort of essence of a person? It's to think. Now, that's not wrong. We are, uh, we are thinking beings. Um, to, to be a human, the medieval said, is to have a body and a rational soul. Rational soul includes the ability to reason. Um, so the mind is certainly uh, important. But sometimes the way that it is used, uh, uh, Descartes saying, or, or just this idea of targeting the mind, uh, is almost dehumanizing. Um, because we are more than just thinking beings. We are thinking beings, but we're more than that. We have loves, we have desires, we have passions. Um, We uh, think things are beautiful, uh, and we don't always have a rationalistic way of explaining something that's beautiful, right? You listen to a, uh, a piece of music by Mozart, and you don't I mean, unless you're really a, like a musical savant, you can't exactly explain in music theory why that piece is so significant. However, most of us, even those of us who aren't musically talented like myself, can listen to it and say, wow, that really struck a chord in me somehow. So my contention to kind of begin this discussion is to say that we are not primarily thinking beings uh, we are that, but we're more than that. Um, I think we are primarily desiring beings. Uh, we lead a lot with our heart, uh, not necessarily with our mind. Now, that's not to say we never make rational decisions. Sometimes we do things. I mean, that's part of what it means to be an adult, right? Sometimes you do the things you don't want to do because you know you have to do them. But still, uh, we we tend to act based on based on our love, um, what we love shapes what we desire. So it's not so much, I think, therefore I am, as Descartes would say, it's I love, therefore I am, or what contemporary Christian philosopher James K. A. Smith says, uh, you are what you love. You become what you love. Um, and you kind of see this in our larger culture, right? This is why advertisers do not give you a syllogism in every commercial. Uh, our product is good. You should buy good products. Therefore, you should buy our product. You know, and they don't give you a bunch of proofs as to why their product is good. But rather, the Coors Light commercial is about a bunch of young, attractive people having a good time. And you as the viewer watch this commercial and you say, oh, wow, look at those people. They look really happy. I should drink Coors Light too. Um, and I'll be happy like them. Um, I drink a lot of Coors Light. Not that happy. 
uh, not as happy as they are in the commercials anyways. <laughs> um, so anyway, so, so advertisers do not try to persuade us with logical arguments. If we were primarily thinking beings, this is how they would advertise. Um, and really, uh, that is probably one of the reasons why we have problems with markets is because uh, we don't actually have rational consumers. We have consumers that often act irrationally, um, partly because they're lied to by advertisements. It's important then, I think, that here at St. Paul's, we do not treat the person in the pew as a consumer to be entertained. Um, we also don't treat someone in the pew like a pure intellect, uh, a pure mind. We're not Presbyterians. Just kidding. It's a Presbyterian joke. Um, I'm just kidding. But we try to treat the worshiper as someone who is fully human. And that's true of the ministers and everybody else involved in the service as well. With our whole hearts, our whole minds, our whole bodies, we worship the Lord in a way that really does form and shape us. Uh, love the Lord with thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. I was once in a class at Liberty. Liberty is a Baptist broadly evangelical school, and I was taking a class on pastoral ministry, and this was after I was a deacon, so I would wear my collar to class, which was also interesting, um, and one of the professors who was teaching this class had been a megachurch pastor in Northern Virginia of a Baptist church, and he goes on about how they would do communion at their church. They would do it twice a year, and it was just whenever him or the elders decided, hey, we need to do communion, and it would never be on a Sunday morning. It would only be on Wednesday nights, they would have stations set up around the church, and first he said we would give a long talk about everything communion's not, because we don't want people to think that we're Catholic. And then the father of the family would bring their family up, or the husband of a wife would bring his wife up, and he would give them communion at one of these little stations around the church that they had set up. And then he looks at me and he goes, so Wes, since you all do communion every week, how do you make it feel special for people? And I was like, sort of taken aback. By the question, uh, it's like, well, it's the wrong question to ask. But at the same time, uh, it's hard for it not to be special when we're on our knees confessing our sins, receiving the absolution. When the priest comes to you every time you're receiving communion and says, this is the body of Christ, you know. Um, so uh, it, wrong question. But, but the point is that we are all present there. Um, it is special. Uh, now, sometimes... Any liturgy, whether it's a, a written liturgy like the Book of Common Prayer and the Missal, or whether it's, uh, whether it's an informal liturgy like you would find at a large contemporary church, they have their liturgies too. They just don't always have them written out. Um, any liturgy can breed a kind of apathy in us, you know. There are times where you come to church and you may not really feel it on a given Sunday. Um, but the liturgy has a way of getting your attention at different points. You know, sometimes it's the confession. Sometimes it's the prayer of humble access. Uh, sometimes it's, uh, it's right as you're just walking up to the communion rail, you know, but it has a way of, of working in us. So, um, so I wanted to start kind of by, so yes, liturgy shapes our desires. Um, it is aimed at giving us an idea of, of what we strive to. Um, a telos, an endpoint, something that we're aimed at. Um, but it also, it also teaches us. The liturgy is instructive. So the phrase that's important here is lex orandi, lex credendi, um, which is an important Latin phrase. Uh, it means the law of praying is the law of believing. 
this was a guy named Prosper of Aquitaine who said it first, as far as we can tell. He was a bishop, 5th century in modern-day France. And the context of this quote is that Prosper was bragging that the liturgy of the Catholic Church was uniform, and it was remarkably so. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, there wasn't like a, a digital way to transmit liturgical files between regions, but they did have a common liturgy. Um, and so, therefore, the church was teaching the same unified faith of Christ, is Prosper's point. You can go to any Catholic church anywhere in the world, and we're doing the same thing and everywhere. And that proves that there is a sort of unity of belief, and you can trust what's going on here as a result of that. You don't have to, you're not looking at competing liturgies going, oh, I wonder which one I like better. Um, and I will say, even in spite of our unhappy divisions, as the prayer book calls them, uh, across denominational lines, the structure of the liturgy does remain remarkably similar in various traditions. A Lutheran uh, Holy Communion service, an Anglican Holy Communion service, and a Roman Catholic Holy Communion service still look very similar to each other, even though some of the substance might be a little bit different. But there is still a large unity between the, between the various groups. But the point he's trying to make in the, in the quote is that the way that we pray and worship will un- influence our underlying belief systems. Furthermore, uh, what is contained in the liturgy itself is authoritative as far as theology goes. So if it's in the liturgy, then it is what we believe. Um, now, of course, sometimes we have to interpret things in the liturgy um, through what we believe as well. So there is a kind of feedback loop there. But generally speaking, uh, if it's in the liturgy, then the church uh, teaches it. Um, and so when we worship, we're being molded to think theologically, um, not just think, but also to think. Um, and that is a very helpful tool. Uh, 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 as it's been said, the medium is the message. Uh, so through our liturgy, we are being taught. And it's hard to distinguish uh, form from content then. Um, and I think deep down, we all know that's true. Uh, you don't get the same thing when you watch the movie as when you read the book. You know, it's just not true. Even if the movie is a pretty good adaptation of the book, you still miss things um, that might be there. Um, so we can't really distinguish form from content. Um, if I tell my wife I love her, but I do it in the most irritated tone of voice and my body language is one of avoidance or anger, what is she going to take away from that, right? Mm-hmm. Not, that I, not that I love her. <laughs> um, or, or at least that I maybe don't mean it fully at the time or something like that. Um, so we have, to, we have to, the way that we do something and what we're doing needs to be united. That's one of the problems of a lot of modern Christianity is, oh, well, we can take, keep the same message. We just change everything around the message. We change the style of the sermon. We change the way that we do liturgy. We change all the music. You know, we can just take these parts out and put them back in. Um, now, that's not to say change is always bad. It's just to say um, that, that we have to be very thoughtful when we do make changes. And this is why the Book of Common Prayer and the Missal are so important, because they embody one of the most beautiful expressions of the gospel delivered to us once and for all in both form and content. Um, So we have a a guy who comes here sometimes who had been educated at St. John's College in downtown Annapolis. And um, the reason he started coming here was when he was there, someone told him, if you want to experience the most beautiful parts of the English language, read the King James Bible, the complete works of Shakespeare, and the Book of Common Prayer. 
the older ones, not the newer ones. And so he came here because we have at least two of the three um, of those of those things. And I think he's I think he's come to appreciate that. So what is practically uh, the point of all this? Um, well, I think that first, uh, Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi validates liturgical worship, right? Because without a set liturgy, uh, whatever we do becomes a question purely of preference or styles, which ultimately leads to a kind of instability and anarchy. Um, I saw this growing up, having been raised in evangelical circles. You saw kind of a shift in a lot of churches, like in the late 90s, early 2000s, from um, maybe a lot of them would be maybe traditional at one point, and then they started, you know, getting into more contemporary stuff, which, again, is not necessarily always bad, but often it would come with things like, this isn't your grandmother's church. And you listen to that and you think, that is not a great uh, way to market yourself, because who are you saying is welcome at a church when when that's your sort of battle cry, you know? Um, so, uh, you know, it's not good. And it also it also then, you know, in 30 years, people will look back at what churches do during this time period and say, that was really tacky. That was really cheesy. You know, uh, thank goodness we're not like that anymore because that's the nature of style. You things go in and out of style. Um, but the liturgy is sort of uh, transcendent of that because it's rather unchanging. Um, or when we change it, we like to do it very slowly and over the course of a couple hundred years um, before we do anything too radical. Liturgy also allows us to have an intentionality in what we're doing, right? Everything is on purpose. Why does the priest stand a certain way? Why does he face a certain way? Why is he wearing certain garments? Why do we stand? Why do we kneel? Why do we sit? All of these things have reasons behind them, and it's, and it's on purpose. It's intentional. It's not just something we said, oh, well, we'll do it this way just because it'll be the most comfortable for people or something like that. Uh, but there's meaning to what we're doing. Um, and then it also, this also means that the slightest change in worship is not incidental, but rather reflects on our theology. Uh, so, for example, uh, we saw this in the switch from the 1928 prayer book to the 1979 prayer book. And I, I've said it before that I don't hate the 1979 prayer book. However, there are some things that do, um, they lessen some, the impact of some things. So, for example, the prayer of humble access, uh, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body and our souls washed by his most precious blood is not in the prayer of humble access. Uh, which is a beautiful statement about Eucharistic, uh, the, the benefits of the Eucharist, right? Um, and there are some other things. Uh, miserable offenders in evening prayer and morning prayer taken out. We're not, we're not so bad, you know, um, is kind of the message there. And, um, or at least what you're left with uh, once you take that out. Again, I don't mean to beat up on the 79 prayer book, but it is a good example, I think, a pretty stark example. Um, again, and sometimes this is for the best. Right, it was probably a good idea to change the liturgy from Latin to English at some point. I don't know when that point was, and it's sad to me as a Latin teacher that uh, that they did have to change it. But at some point, it made sense because most people were not understanding it. Um, and if we do a liturgy in a language that people can't understand, what are we saying? We're saying the people don't matter. We're saying it's not important for them to really pay attention. We're not instructing using the liturgy to instruct them because they don't know what's going on. Right, so the, it's good to change the language of the liturgy from Latin to English. Um, 
there are theological reasons why it's important for people to grasp what's going on. Um, And I think this is why we care so much about ritual and liturgy. Um, It's not just that we like fancy clothes and pretty uh, pretty movements, though there's nothing wrong with those things. Um, But rather, those things are telling us something and we need to understand uh, what it is. A final reason that uh, this is important is that it makes um, the liturgy important even when we don't feel it, like I was alluding to earlier. Because there are times where you don't want to go to church. Uh, There are times where church feels boring. There are times when you're thinking about your fantasy football lineup during church, um, even though uh, that's later in the day. That's just part of being human, right? We are distracted. We uh, often err and stray from thy ways like lost sheep, as we say. But the liturgy has a way of snapping us out of that. Um, Like I said, it's hard to feel distant when you're on your knees praying a prayer of confession, when you go to the altar and hear that this is the body and blood of Christ, which are given for you. Uh, My friend, Father Miles, um, who I co-host a podcast with, mentions a woman named Lauren uh, Winner uh, once, and and she was a Jewish woman who converted to Anglicanism. Jewish worship is similar uh, to Christian worship in that they are very liturgical and often use rote prayers like we do, um, and they memorize them. And she once asked her rabbi when she was growing up why they did that, and he said, one day uh, you will not know how to pray, and the prayers will pray for you. And uh, she found this true later in her life. She became Episcopalian and was using the Book of Common Prayer and I think went through some traumas and and the Book of Common Prayer began to pray for her. So the liturgy, uh, like the sacraments that they are attached to, is a reminder of the objective reality that God's grace does not change. God doesn't love us less. Um, It's a continual reminder that he is love. And through the liturgy and the sacraments, we get to be reminded of that again and again and again and again in a way that makes it clear that those things are not dependent on our feelings. They're not even dependent on our ability to focus in the liturgy or to feel some sort of emotional or spiritual high during the liturgy. So let's think about, uh, let's think about a typical non-denominational or, or broadly evangelical worship service for a second. What are some things you would expect to see if you walked into just a sort of generic mega church, what would you see? Well, I'd see a very large group mm-hmm. of people, overwhelmingly large, and I would see. Well, I have been to those. Mm-hmm. Me too. I, 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 I think they appeal to this, the senses mm-hmm. more than they uh, appeal to your mind. Okay. Yeah, they have the, the, the Megatron up there with it. How can I say this? So like a large screen, some large screens, you'll see some large it screens seems, up front. It seems to be more all feeling and, okay. and the music, you know, yeah. enhances that and, and it seems to be less content as far as liturgy. So the music, let's talk about the music. The music, uh, like modern worship music mm-hmm. is often very repetitive. Right. Same choruses over and over again. Mm-hmm. Uh, me and I uh, tend to feature largely in a lot of those songs, right? Um, it's more, they're, and they're more emotionally based. Right, right. Uh, they're almost songs, well, I, I saw a comedian at Liberty once at Convocation came and he said, uh, he said, let's play a game Let's uh, where I'll play a song and we'll ask, is it about my girlfriend or God? And so you have to figure out, is, the, is this a worship song or, a, or a, like a secular love song? And... Uh, Sometimes, if you don't know the con- you know you don't know the artist or whatever, it's a little difficult to tell. Unless I 
actually, yes, that was that questioned that as to, uh, initially when it came out, it was as if it was a couple, uh. a woman, yeah. um, singing yeah, about a man. But then it either was clarified or questioned later mm -hmm. that it actually sure. was God. Oh, interesting. That's funny because I always thought yeah. it was a, yeah. a, a love song about a guy. Oh, interesting. I'm glad Pat you brought that up because this, the, there's this duality about that. Yeah. You know? It can be utilized. It's utilitarian. It can be utilized mm. for secular or sacred. Right, which is great for an artist who wants some mainstream success. If it's ambiguous enough, then they might play you on the radio. You know, this goes back to the Holy Roman Catholic Church, and it has such a rich history yeah. of sacred music. Yes. And in, in, in the, in, in that, you know, the music was always uh, supporting the, the liturgy. Mm -hmm. and, and I might add that, that you take all the great Renaissance composers like the Gabrielli's and the, uh, you know, uh, oh, it goes on and on. I, 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 I'm not going to mention all of them, but they would generally write in 3-2 mm -hmm. or 3-4. Sacred time, as far as music, is 3-4. Uh, secular time is 4-4. Four, four, right. For all right. the dance music of the popular, for the peasants and so forth, the yep. medieval times. So they, they felt that this was, 3-4 was a perfect a time, a perfect time. It was a sacred mm. time, see. So the music played a large part of supporting the liturgy so that, that it, it's more like it was one component and then the liturgy was another component. And, but everything was balanced. They were sort of like dance partners in a way. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And appealing not only to your feelings, nothing more than, but appealing to your mind. Right. Like you said, Father, was in the beginning. So you had this connection. Yes. And yes. everything, and the whole point is there's a purpose in this. Yes. Because God is purpose himself. Yes. And there's balance. Yes. But here you mentioned the mega churches. I, didn't, I don't see where there's balance. Right. Right. Yeah, they have the, the yeah. lighting. Right, the lighting comes down so that you can better sort of, uh, right. you know. Yeah, the theater seats. Right, and movie theater-like seats, yeah. So, like, you know, you can put your coffee in one in the cup holder and you can have the nice relaxing, uh, you know, seat. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, also, uh, you know, the sermon. Yeah. yeah. In those contexts. I, it, first of all, it is the main attraction, typically, besides the music. Um, it's the center of everything. Yeah. It is, uh, if, a, if someone is not a good preacher, then people will just go find someone who is, right? Right. Um, and, uh, and, and it really is uh, heavy, heavy, heavy on the anecdotes, personal anecdotes, you know, autobiography. Oh, yeah. um, right. Motivational speaking. I always say it's, a, it's like a, it's half stand-up comedy routine, half motivational speech. Um, yeah, yeah. I've been listening to a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which is about uh, Mark Driscoll, who was a big evangelical pastor uh, early to mid-2000s. And I was never a big fan of him, um, but I, a lot of people were. Liberty loved him. He came and spoke at convocations multiple times. His church had an average Sunday attendance of 20,000 people across a couple wow. different, uh, different uh, campuses. And, um, but you listen to this podcast because he was removed from his position for being incredibly abusive to people. Mm -hmm. and, um, but you listen to his preaching, and it is all about him. 
God called me to start this church. And if you don't like it, then, you know, you can get out. Basically, he, he had this one saying where he said, uh, uh, there's a body of there's a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. And by the grace of God, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. You know, if you oppose me, you're opposing God. Um, even a church where I grew up, uh, there's this large independent Baptist church. And their pulpit was huge because that's the reason they're all there. It was a very John MacArthur type church, if you know who that is. Big church. And on the pulpit, it said Sola Scriptura in big, bold letters, conflating, in my opinion, the preaching from the pulpit and the actual scripture itself. You know, if you if you don't agree with everything that's coming from the pulpit, you don't believe in the scriptures. So there's this conflation between the uh, between the preacher and the word in an uncomfortable way, in my opinion, because often they become exercises in narcissism, you know. Um, the, the sermon becomes all about the person preaching, and that's really dangerous. So so I would describe all the things that we're pointing out about contemporary churches, and to be fair, we are caricaturing a lot of this, so I'm sure we can find some exceptions to the rules, certainly. But largely speaking, this is a kind of anthropocentric worship, right? It's, a, it's focused on the person, uh, whether that be the person in the pulpit who's a sort of celebrity status guy uh, wearing nice sneakers and you know skinny jeans, um, or even just the um, the experience of the worshiper as a consumer. Everything is about what I prefer, what I want. If I don't like it, if I they don't, this church doesn't have all the programs I want. I'm just going to go down the street to a church that does have all those things that I want. Um, Whereas I would argue that when you come to a, a liturgical church that does liturgy well. Uh, the opposite is true. The focus is not on the individual, but on God. Um, that's why the priest does not face the people, right? The priest is facing the altar, and he kind of stands in front of the people as their representative uh, to God. Um, but that's the center. That's why whenever we cross the plain, we bow, reverence the altar. Um, it's why the Eucharist, not the sermon, is really the center of everything that we do. The sermon's important. One of the probably problems with liturgical mainline churches in the late 20th century has been preaching has gotten really bad. So I'm not saying this is an excuse to be a bad preacher, but if you are a bad preacher, uh, your people are still receiving a certain grace by participating in the liturgy. The liturgy will correct your bad preaching. You know, you can get over bad preaching. You can't get over an invalid sacrament. Um, so, uh, so the sacrament is the, is the heart of our life together, not an individual personality, not a, uh, not a charismatic preacher. Those things are not bad necessarily, but they're not, um, they're not necessary or they're not necessary conditions. Um, so I would say that, that, that worship that is liturgical and, and proper is theocentric. Uh, everything we do is aimed at a certain, um, in a certain direction. So that kind of leads us to a discussion of sacraments then, because liturgy and sacraments are uh, intimately connected. One of the problems I've had in recent years has been there's been a recovery by evangelicals of liturgy, which is not always bad, but they don't usually accept the sacraments as the sacraments to go along with that. So they want the liturgy without the liturgy. (laughs) And uh, that has been kind of an interesting thing to watch unfold. Um, so what are sacraments? Well, we talked a little bit about sacraments last week because we were talking about the church, and the church is constituted by the sacraments. So at some point, they are sort of uh, inseparable, but we'll focus a little more on sacraments as sacraments tonight. Um, sacraments are outward, an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace given to us, ordained by Christ himself, 
as a means whereby we receive the same and a pledge to assurance to assure us thereof. So um, sacraments convey grace and they are the means by which we receive that which they assure us of. So the sign is somehow participating in the thing that is signified. Signs signify something. Um, And that's not always true uh, of a sign. Sometimes a sign will point you somewhere else, you know. But in this sign, the thing is there in it. So when we receive the sign, we receive the thing that the sign points us to. Uh, John Henry Blunt says, Grace cannot ordinarily be separated from the sign which Christ has ordained. Ordinarily is the important word. Uh, I think I've said it before. God is bound to the sacraments. He's not bound by the sacraments. When we receive the sacraments, there's an assurance. God is here. God is doing what God says he will do. You know, the tribe in Africa that's never had an evangelist come doesn't mean that they're all going to hell automatically. Um, God can still work apart from the sacraments, but the ordinary means is by the sacraments. The sacraments are evidence of God's one-way love for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's a sense in which we cannot respond on our own to that love, and the sacraments are a way of saying, hey, you can't do it, but here is a means by which you can. Just like the Israelites couldn't get out of the wilderness by themselves, they had to have manna, which is a prefigurement of the Holy Eucharist. Andrew Davidson, in his book, Why Sacraments, uh, he's a British Anglican. He's uh, really a wonderful uh, writer. He says, the reason for the sacraments are the reasons for the incarnation. At root, they both come down to one reason, salvation. Christ was incarnate to save us, and the sacraments are means by which God works our salvation. Now, some people will say that they don't like the sacraments, um, because they feel like they have a direct access to God through Christ. I don't need to go to confession because I can just confess my sins to Christ and they'll be forgiven um, in my heart. Um, I don't need to be baptized because what's important is whether I believe or not. And so what, you, what this ends up doing really subtly is putting created things in competition with God. I don't need X because I have Y, right? That's kind of the, the mentality. There is a problem with this in that it treats God as a thing to be compared to other things with. So, for example, I don't need, uh, I don't need a priest to confess my sins because God will forgive my sins. The problem is that the priest and God are not on the same plane, right? Um, so, uh, so Herbert McCabe talks about this, uh, Dan, um, that, that – uh, Humans and anything that's created, which is finite, is defined by not being something else, right? A human is not a sheep. Whiskey is not wine. I guess you could fortify wine. Anyways, but, um, but you know, they, these are different things, but they're things within creation. God is not within creation, so there's not a competition. So when the priest says, I absolve you of your sins, it's not in competition with God. The priest forgives you instead of God, but rather God through the priest forgives you of your sins, um, just like God saves you in baptism, there's a sense in which that's true. There's a sense in which baptism now saves you, St. Peter says, as we'll see later. But those are not exclusive things because 
baptism is not not God because God's not defined that way as, as if there are two things on the same playing field. And if we give baptism too much credit, we're not giving God enough credit. Um, it doesn't quite work that way. There's not a trade-off. God is not in competition with the material world is the point. He uses... Yes, please, please. I really do not understand why there is a need for um, um, confession. Yeah. Um, because if you can confess yourself to God anyway, mm-hmm. why do you need to do it to a human being, whether they are or an ordained one or right. not? So this is a good question, and it's important to note that in Anglicanism, we don't usually require confession the same way Roman Catholics require confession. So if you're a Roman Catholic, you are obligated to go to confession prior to going to the Mass, um, which is why a Roman Catholic church every Saturday will usually have a couple hours for confession available. Um, but the Anglican uh, tradition does retain the practice of sacrament of the sacrament of confession. Um, I offer it here. Um, and, uh, and so, so why? It's a good question. Well, first of all, it is a, an ordained by Christ way of having sins absolved. And we see this in John when he breathes on the, whole, on the disciples and says um, that they have the authority to forgive sins or retain sins. So they have the ability to forgive or to not forgive sins. Um, and that's only given to the disciples. That's not given to everybody. That's given specifically to the 12. Um, and we see that in other places too. Jesus gives them the authority to bind and loose, which is kind of a similar uh, or related uh, authority that they have. And that authority is passed from the, uh, from the apostles to bishops and from bishops to priests. So it's one of the things that a priest is charged with when they are ordained, um, that those whose sins you... Forgive are forgiven, and whose sins you retain are retained. The same words are spoken by the bishop to the priest. Now, there are a few reasons why um, why the sacrament of confession is good. Uh, the first is that um, there is an objective assurance there. Uh, so um, it's possible uh, to confess your sins without a priest and have them forgiven, so long as the con- sort of condition of this is perfect contrition. You feel sorry for your sin because of the sin itself, not because of the implication of the sin, not because you, you know, mess stuff up in your life, not because you're, you feel like you're going to go to hell because of it or something like that, but because you realize that you offended God, that you, um, that you sin directly against him. If one has that re- recognition, they, there is certainly, of course, grace and forgiveness and everything. But sometimes it helps us to hear that from an objective outside, you know, declaration. I absolve you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. There is no question. I don't have to stay up at night wringing my hands. Um, so I think that the, the confessional is a beautiful place to, uh, to, um, to do that. And, and also scripture does tell us to confess our sins unto one another. And I think that the privacy of the confessional is a, is, a, is a responsible way to do that because what's said in the confessional will not be repeated outside of the confessional by the priest. Um, and I think there are some sins that, while certainly not uh, unforgivable, um, could bring certain scandal to the church if they were publicly confessed you know, in front of everyone. If you just got up in front of everyone and said, hey, everybody, I had a really mean thought about Father Wesley during the sermon today. You know? <laughs> um, that, would, that would maybe not be bad, uh, not be the best thing to do. Um, 
So this allows us to confess our sins within the context of, of the church uh, because no sin is private. That's the other thing too. Uh, often we view sin as, well, it's just something I did by myself and so I don't have to confess it to other, you know, in, the, in a public context because it's just between me and God. But because one is joined to the church, there is no just me and God, right? My, uh, 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 when one member suffers, all members suffer with it, Paul says. So um, the idea then that, that sin would be confessed within the context of the church I think is really important. And the priest is the one who has the authority in a parish to absolve those sins. So I think all those reasons are kind of why confession would be um, an important sacrament. I, I personally, I'll just say I have benefited a great deal from having a regular confession time and a confessor who knows me, who has gotten to know me, you know, in the confessional. Um, and I think that's been um, immensely helpful and, uh, and uh, in a way that a lot of things weren't like, yeah. So I, I would just, just from personal experience say, I think this has really worked. Last week, Father, you mentioned also that uh, the line of ordained priests mm-hmm. extends back to the apostles. Yes, yes. So one thing we may consider concerning confession is that uh, all the ordained priests, whether they be Roman Catholic or Anglican, any priest, they have had this lineage passed yes. pass down from the apostles, mm-hmm. St. Paul and all the rest, and they've been blessed, and that line continues down through the centuries. Yes. So when you go to a priest and confess, you know, you are confessing, and he's representing as an intermediary, if you like, if you want to call it that way, uh, to God and Christ. and um, Part- Participating in Christ's mediatorial work is the way that it's a good... The priest is not an extra mediator, no, 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 but no, one no. of the means by which Christ is present to his church, right? Right. Yeah. I'm no, and you, yeah, no, you're on the right track there. I, yeah, sometimes I express it. No, no, I think, that was, I think that's really helpful. Because, yes, it's the same authority is the point. It's the, what was given to the apostles has been preserved in the church. It didn't just go away. No, yeah. It's still here with us. Trying to yes. That. yes, yes, yes. So, um, so Christ is our high priest, and an ordained priest and bishop is participating in his priesthood. It's not a different priesthood. No. It's oh, not a supplement to his priesthood. It's a way that – no, it's not. It's not, it's not – it's, you weren't saying this, but just to clarify. Okay. It's not a um, – it's not an extra step in the process. It's this is the means by which. It, the same question could be asked, why bread and wine? Mm-hmm. Why do we have to have bread and wine every week? Why can't we just think about it in our minds or remember it or you know, pray with that image in your head or something like that? Um, it's because God uses material means, whether that's a person in the priest, whether it's water, whether it's uh, wine and, um, and bread, to give us something objective, something to assure us, like the definition says, a visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. So, you know, if somebody, uh, if somebody dies on their way to the confessional, having a really heavy sin on their heart, but they had the intention of confessing it, or they were truly sorry of that sin, I, you know, it's above our pay grade to make any sort of final judgments, but we can certainly cast ourselves on the mercy of God. Um, in those contexts as well. But, um, but generally speaking, these are good things for us to, to practice um, because they're ordained by, by Christ. Does that help?
didn't. No, no, I think no. It was you were right to point out that this is connected to uh, this is connected to the apostolic uh, apostolic ministry. Um, now there is a question. Having trouble hearing you. Now there is a question. Uh, there is a question. How many sacraments are there? Uh, two or seven. If you read the thirty-nine articles of religion in the back of the prayer book, which, by the way, are not ultimately authoritative for Anglicans, but um, they are in the prayer book as sort of historical documents. Uh, the, the 39 articles will tell you that there are two only as generally necessary to salvation, that is to say baptism and, supper, and the supper of the Lord, which makes sense. Because when you get married, it's not really a salvation issue, right? Um, I mean, in a way it is, because marriage sanctifies you and pushes you forward, or at least if you do it right, pushes you forward in sanctification. But it's not, people can not be married and still be saved, you know. Um, Ordination is the same way, right? Uh, You don't have to be ordained uh, to be saved. Um, Most people who are saved are not ordained. In fact, sometimes being ordained makes it harder for you to be saved. Um, So, so the, the articles are interested in saying we don't want to sort of over, uh, overburden people with these other five as far as, um, uh, as, far as, uh, as, far as making them mandatory or required. Um, the definition that they are drawing from uh, in the 39 articles, that there are two, comes from Peter Lombard in the 12th century. So it, uh, is, it was a minority position that there would only be two. But it is a position within the, within the conversation of the church throughout time. There are, however, five other sacraments. There is the sacrament of confession, the sacrament of confirmation, the sacrament of marriage, the sacrament of holy orders, and the sacrament of unction. Unction is uh, like an anointing uh, oil uh, for the sick. So today I was able to do that twice, uh, which was fun. Not fun. It's not fun because people are suffering, but it's nice to be able to be there with them and provide that sacrament for them. Um, so the point there is not every Christian gets married or ordained. Those aren't necessary for salvation, but they are still sacraments because they participate, strengthen, and further our salvation. Um, now the other question would be, are sacraments just symbols? Some Christians who would be called memorialists say that sacraments are just symbols, um, to which they mean that the sacrament itself doesn't affect a change in the person who receives it. Baptism is just a public expression of faith that I already have. So I'm not changed in baptism. I'm just telling everybody, hey, I've had, I have faith. Though hard to, I mean, you don't have to dunk someone in water for them to do that. They could just say, hey, everybody, I have faith. If you watch The Office, you know the episode where Michael declares bankruptcy. It could be like that. I declare bankruptcy. Um, but that's not quite how the sacraments work. And I don't think scripture ever talks about them as purely just, uh, just symbols. Um, in the sacramental system, we can say there is a sense in which uh, the symbols are the most real things. So even the word symbol there uh, uh, comes from two words put together, sin, which means with, and balo, which means throw. So literally a kind of thrown together. The thing that it symbolizes and the thing itself that's doing the symbolizing are sort of com- you know, combined or, or uh, one is mediated by the other. A symbol connects an idea with reality. So then what happens in the sacraments uh, is the next question. Um, and I think it's probably best to limit us just to 
baptism in the Eucharist, though, more questions are certainly, uh, you know, we could certainly talk about other questions as far as other sacraments go, um, like we already have with confession. Um, But effectively in the sacraments, no matter which sacrament is being offered, the primary actor is not the priest, it's not the water, it's not the bread, it's not the wine. Those things are necessary for the sacrament. But the primary actor is the Holy Spirit. What goes on is the Holy Spirit, which again, it just shows how, uh, how wonderful God is that he would use such imperfect people and imperfect means in order to get, communicate grace to us. Um, as we said, the Holy Spirit is bound to the sacraments because God is faithful. When God promises something to us, we know that he will be faithful to keep that promise. This is what he does the whole Old Testament with Israel. They're continually failing to do the things that they're charged to do. And God is continually offering them chance after chance after chance and means after means after means. Um, And you think, looking at it, you think, how do you not get it? But they never seem to. And we are Israel, so we often don't get it too. Um, So a sacramental worldview, um, broadly speaking, uh, is that sacraments give us a whole new way of looking at the world, really, um, because they help us see God in the world around us. So that begins in the Mass. It begins in the baptismal font. You know, we recognize God is moving in the, wa- in the, in the water, in the bread and the wine. But then um, as, we, as we leave the church and we go out into the world, we recognize God works in similar ways, through similar means, through fallen people, through... Uh, coincidences through, you know, weird uh, connections and things like that. You know, we just, we don't know how God will work. Um, he, he works in mysterious ways. But the sacraments kind of prime us to see the world charged with God's presence. Um, it's, it's, it's that unveiling of reality. You know, we see that uh, everything is spiritual in a sense. Um, now, the, it raises the question, uh, if, if everything is holy, is anything holy? Well, if I can go, uh, I, one, uh, one pastor I used to like named uh, Rob Bell uh, kind of went off the deep end a little bit, and um, he talks about, oh, I feel God when I'm surfing on the waves. You know, I feel him there. Some people will say, I feel God when I'm on the links uh, playing golf, you know. Um, so if so, why, why go to church? Why, why do we need that? Um, at one point, uh, it should be said, St. Augustine, in counting the ways that the natural world can be used by the Holy Ghost, uh, surmised that there might be 300 or more sacraments. Um, this is before they officially decided on seven. Um, the guy I'm doing my thesis on, Hugh of St. Victor, has a couple hundred sacraments in his book on the sacraments. Um, but I think, that, um, I think that the point is that sacraments are, connect, are the means of grace connected to the church specifically, um, outside of which there is no salvation. So yes, when someone's in nature, the waves, the links, tall, tall mountain, yes, God is there. The heavens declare the glory of God, uh, the psalmist says. So they're not wrong to say that. What they're wrong to do is to substitute that for the church. My church is the golf course. My church is the is the surf club. My church is the is the um, mountain climbing class. Well, that's what I was thinking about these mega churches. And you know, they, it seems to me that the, the preachers that are in these churches, they're more or less giving using their well, not, I don't want to say their liturgy, but the liturgy as something that, that uh, uh, was always supporting uh, something in, in their parishioner's secular life. Right. 
it, they're never talking about, they're never really talking about uh, the kingdom mm. of God mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and what is to come. Right. It's like, it's like uh, we're going to heal you so you can go about in this world right. to be better. Or we're going to give you, we're going to, we're going to heal you and pray for this and that, and maybe $1,000 will appear in your mailbox right, right. to help you out. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it, it seems so superficial. Mm-hmm. Superficial. It's based on a sort of um, false, uh, false anthropology, right? We're we're de- we're directed at being a really good uh, worker or, or you know getting rich you know or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, when in reality, uh, that's not what we're directed at. Whether we have a lot of money or not a lot of money, the point is that we grow in holiness. Um, and uh, you know, one of those makes it a lot easier to grow in holiness than the other. But Your father, I never felt that way about the Holy Roman Catholic Church or any of the other yeah. or any of the churches that they were doing that. Right. You know, I mean, they were they were. I always perceived that they were truly concerned about right. people's souls. Yes, and, yes. And God. And there are times where perhaps we could say individuals within the church have mm-hmm. engaged in behaviors that were probably not directed at, like like the selling of indulgences was not was exploitative, you know, of people. Right. But but the liturgy itself That's has right. never, never changed in that regard. It's always been, yeah. The same aim. So yeah, I think you're. I think you're right to point that out exactly. Um, so the so it should. So so instead of replacing church with the natural world, however we like it, I like to go golfing or something like that. I don't really know how anybody could feel God when they golf. At least not when you golf like I do. <laughs> um, but uh, but um, but instead of instead of prioritizing that over the church or substituting that for the church, what we sh- what we need to do as Christians is to is to understand that the sacraments and the church have a sort of primacy. And out of that principle that we encounter in the mass, we then see the world transfigured differently. So yes, there is beauty in the natural world um, for sure, but it's not a beauty that ever replaces the church. Quite the opposite. Okay, so let's talk specifically about, uh, about two sacraments then. Uh, the baptismal uh, sacrament, the, the sacrament of initiation, how we join the church. Um, St. Paul's epistle to the Colossians there, uh, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen. Uh, actually, the text is cut off there, so I can't really uh, read the whole thing. But, um, but the baptismal service in the 28 prayer book is really beautiful. We've started doing it, um, when, when I first got here, they did it in the front of the church. The baptism was up by the pulpit. But if you've been here when we've done a baptism lately, we've started doing it in the back of the church. The idea there is that baptism is a rite of initiation. It's the, it's the means by which one joins the church. So it's done in the back so that the, the symbolism there is they then come through and they join the rest of the church after the baptism. Um, so that's why we do it back there. I know it's uncomfortable. Everybody has to you know, turn around, but um, I think that's, that's the better place for it. And the service has this really beautiful line. Seeing now, dearly beloved brethren, that this child or this person is regenerate, and grafted into the body of Christ's church. Let us give thanks unto Almighty God for these benefits, and with one accord make our prayers unto him that this child or person may lead the rest of his life according to this beginning. If you read the catechism in the prayer book, which is designed to do with children who have been baptized in the church, 
uh, the first question that's asked is, what, what, what is your name? Which is kind of an interesting question because um, the other catechisms, like the, the Reformed Catechism, the Westminster Confession, uh, or Westminster Catechism, begins with, uh, with uh, what is the purpose of man? This kind of grand question. And the, uh, the uh, Luther's Catechisms begin with similar, uh, you know, big questions. And ours is, what's your name? But the reason is that the name is, was given at their baptism, and that becomes the central facet of who they are, their baptismal identity. So I always like that about the Anglican Catechism in the prayer book. Um, in my mind, the sacrament of baptism as a rite of initiation is proof of something called sacramental monergism. Monergism is the idea that God works in affecting our salvation, while synergism is the idea that we participate with God to bring out our salvation. And I'm, not, I'm, I'm more of a synergist in that I think we have to participate with God. We have to cooperate with him. But, uh, and there are a lot of forms of monergism that are unhelpful, um, but but in, at some point, we have to say that what has happened to us in becoming regenerate was not something that we accomplished, but something that God accomplished. Um, and that's because of the doctrine of original sin or inability, uh, which is that we are born with every fiber of our being in rebellion to God. And as a result, we cannot turn to him alone. Now, we might inadvertently do good things. Um, you know, we can certainly commend someone who's not a Christian for being a good parent, for being a good member of the community, you know, things like that. But those things in and of themselves do not bring about salvation or regeneration. Um, they might uh, get one closer. Maybe they help one open their eyes when they experience what's true and good and beautiful. But in and of themselves, they have no salvific value. Um, only the Holy Spirit can open our eyes. Um, but we are stuck in this kind of vicious cycle of sin and ignorance. Uh, the more we sin, the more darkened our understanding becomes. The more darkened our understanding becomes, the easier it is to sin so that we're on this kind of death spiral away from God. And, um, and so, uh, so how do we then receive the benefits won for us by our Lord and his passion and resurrection? Well, the answer has to be baptism, which is the place where the Holy Spirit works. Um, E.B. Pusey, one of the Tractarians, says that baptism, the way we are born again, excludes all idea of human agency in this our spiritual creation. Because what person decides to be created? It's not something we decide to do. It's something that happens to us. We're passive. It shuts out all human cooperation or boasting as though we had in any way contributed to our own birth. And we're not wholly the creatures of his hands. No loophole has been left us. No other instrument named. Our birth is attributed to the baptism of water and the spirit and to that only. I think that's a beautiful, uh, beautiful quotation. Um, now, with regeneration, um, once one is made alive by the spirit, I think then we can understand salvation as synergistic. Baptism is not an end, it's a beginning. Israel was brought through the waters of baptism, but they, they still had to get to the land that was promised to them, right? Um, we come through the waters of baptism, but there's still, there's still a progress that needs to be made. We're made alive, but we have to uh, tend the gift that was given to us in our baptism. Um, I, I thought it would be helpful just briefly to look at a couple biblical themes in line with baptism. The first is the flood. Um, and in fact, this is a connection that's made by St. Peter who talks about baptism being a type of the ark. So water in the Old Testament, um, in the flood narrative, you know, man sins and God sends water. And in 
the case of the vast majority of people, uh, that water was, uh, was a death. Um, in Noah's case, it was a means of salvation, right? Or the ark was the means of salvation. Um, but in that judgment, you, well, in that action, you have both judgment and salvation. In our baptism, those two separate things, in Noah's case, become one thing, and that the old man is dead and the new man is given life. So the judgment and salvation happen to the same person. Um, it also should be in, uh, noted, if you do a study in the book of Genesis, which is one of my favorite Old Testament books, my thesis uh, for my MDiv was on the Hagar and Ishmael story in Genesis 16 and 22. Um, but if you do a study on Genesis, the wells in Genesis are very uh, important. Uh, uh, Hagar thinks that Ishmael's going to die. She leaves him under a bush. And then her eyes are opened by the, by the Lord, and she sees a well. It's been there the whole time, but she's saved because she sees this well. And it's interesting. Her eyes were opened. That's, that's a regeneration. That's what happens to us in our baptism. Um, in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, Jesus tells him, you have to be born again. Nicodemus doesn't seem to understand. Well, how can you be born if you're old? You know, you can't climb back in. And Jesus' answer is, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is baptism. Romans 6, uh, 1 through 11 is really important. Um, St. Paul uh, makes the argument that once you are a Christian, uh, you cannot continue to sin because you have been buried with Christ in your baptism and raised to a newness of life with him in his resurrection. So baptism is the um, identification with his death and resurrection. And, uh, and it destroys our sinful bodies so that we are no longer enslaved to sin. We're set free so that we can live with Christ. Uh, Galatians chapter 3 is really important too. Um, Paul says, Before faith came, we were confined under the law, kept under restraint until faith should be revealed, so that the law was our custodian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, and we are no longer under a custodian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And that language of putting on is interesting. There's a kind of garment idea there, right? You put off the old, you put on the new. Um, in the early church, they uh, baptized in the nude, typically. This is why female deaconesses were important, because you couldn't... Anyways, uh, a tradition I'm glad uh, that we don't continue to practice um, today. But that idea of putting on, putting on our baptism like a garment, you know, there's, it's a new thing that we put on. Um, it, it reminds me of Zechariah in, um, in uh, he, he was the, uh, the prophet Zechariah. There's a part where the, the high priest of the temple, Joshua, this is after the exile of Israel, uh, Zechariah has this vision and, and he sees Joshua standing in the heavenly court wearing dirty garments and the accusers there. And he's pointing at these dirty garments. And so what God does is he gives Joshua new garments, a white garments, you know. And so that's kind of what you, the imagery you have here. Colossians 2, uh, which was on the first slide there, 
um, makes a comparison between baptism and circumcision. Um, so in the Old Testament, circumcision was the way that, that male children entered the Israelite community. You had to be circumcised to join the community. Outsiders had to be circumcised to join the community. Um, kind of a high bar of entry. Um, but St. Paul says, in him, in Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. And you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, working, and through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your, fe- and of your flesh. God made you alive together with him, forgiving you your trespasses, canceling the bond that stood against us with its legal demands, and nailing it to the cross. So there's a, a baptism is the new circumcision in the new covenant, which is great because baptism is uh, not limited to uh, one sex only. Uh, it's open to everyone who would receive it. Um, and again, the bar of entry is not quite as high in that regard. First uh, St. Peter is also important here because, again, he makes the connection to, um, he makes the, connection to the flood. Um, he says that, uh, he says that the, when Christ died for the sins um, of, of the righteous and the unrighteous, uh, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. So this is the descent to the dead, which we talk about in the creeds who formerly did not obey God when God's patience waited in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. Baptism, which now corresponds to this, that is the ark which saved people through water, uh, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, hard to argue with that. Baptism now saves you. <laughs> um, so what benefits then are we talking about? What, what do we receive when we're baptized? Well, there are three. Uh, first, uh, there is the remission of sin, actual and original. Original is what we're born with. It's that inclination to be opposed to God. Um, and there's actual. The sins we have actually committed are forgiven in baptism. Uh, in the early church, before the sacrament of conf- confession was uh, sort of recognized, um, at least in the way that it's currently practiced, sometimes people would uh, hold off on getting baptized until their deathbed uh, because they didn't. if they sinned after baptism, they didn't want to lose the grace that was given to them. But that's why we have confession. Um, the other thing that happens in baptism is that the person who's baptized is transplanted from a genealogy of death to a genealogy of life. So Romans 5, in one man, all sinned. In another, all will be made alive. So we join the genealogy of Christ after having been born in the genealogy of Adam. As a result of that, we're made members in God's family. We are sons of God because of this. Because when God sees us, he sees us not as creatures, but as sons um, through our identification and union with Christ. And then finally, we're given the gift of the Holy Spirit through regeneration. Um, there's a question about infants being baptized. Should infants be baptized? Um, we do that, and without any sort of if ands, or buts about it. Um, the reason is that, uh, that infants are sinful human beings who need a Savior. St. Augustine talks about this even when he was a baby. 
he uh, he was you know he would scream because he wanted things and he you know he viewed everybody as a means by which he could get them. I read that section to Rowan and Jude when I'm changing their diapers uh, usually, um, but uh, also Jesus says, "Let the little children come to me," and so I think it's uh, a real travesty to place oneself between our Lord and um, and children. Um, and also, Scripture does not prohibit the practice. Um, in fact. If anything, because of its connection with circumcision, it's encouraged. And uh, if we use the same reasoning, well, Scripture doesn't say children should be baptized. Uh, scripture also doesn't say that women should receive communion, but we give women communion. You know, so we have to be careful uh, not to uh, not to uh, uh, use sort of regulative principles. I think um, there are lots of reasons why uh, infants should be baptized. I think so. That's just a quick excursus because we do that and. Um, and uh, it's actually, in my view, it's one of the more beautiful, uh, just as far as the symbolism of it, you know, being able to tell Jude and Rowan, you didn't decide to be baptized, which cuts against our kind of modern Western inclinations. Well, I'm going to let them grow up and decide for themselves. Um, that is in, of its, in and of itself a decision. So uh, this is a quote by Luther, just to close this part about baptism. Uh, and uh, as usual with Martin Luther, it's a bit over the top, but I think it's a really cool quote. He says, your baptism is nothing less than grace clutching you by the throat, a graceful throttling by which your sin is submerged in order that ye may remain under grace. Come thus to thy baptism. Give thyself up to be drowned in baptism and killed by the mercy of thy dear God, saying, drown me and throttle me, dear Lord, for henceforth I will gladly die to sin with thy son. Strong. This is why we keep, that, uh, keep holy water fonts by the entrance of the church. Because when we dip our fingers in and we make the sign of the cross, it's a reminder of this, that, of what baptism did for us, and that we have an ongoing covenant with God as a result of that. When, when, a, new, when a child is baptized, we recite our baptismal covenant together as a church, a renewal of all of our baptismal covenants, which we also do at the Easter vigil as well. Um, so, uh, so we're always kind of living into that baptism is the point. I have a question. Mm -hmm. Um, if one is baptized as a baby, Mm -hmm. is it good to be baptized as an adult? Uh, no, no, uh, we would not do that here. Um, we would, uh, we would, if, if someone were to be baptized as a baby and then leave the church and then come back, they would be welcomed with open arms but not uh, not rebaptized, um, because it's a sacrament that only occurs once. So it's not something we need to do repeatedly. Um, we would just say, "Hey, the fact that you came back is evidence that baptism works." You know, <laughs> my mom and I go round and round about this because she was baptized as a Methodist uh, as a baby, and she became uh, Baptist later in life after kind of not really caring about the church. And she always said, "Well, I wasn't born again until." I was older. And I said, no, you were born again as a baby. The Holy Spirit was just faithful to you so that you did come back to the church, which is really a beautiful thing. Um, he, he, you were the one sheep and he went after you, you know, and brought you back. So no, no rebaptisms. Um, but we might celebrate that in some way, you know, maybe let that person speak during announcements and talk about their story or something like that. Um, cause it's certainly a good example for us. Uh, yes. I, I don't know why this just occurred to me, but, um, the, like the, the word baptism is in the Gospels, and mm-hmm. I don't know what the Greek Baptizo. translation is, but what did that mean to someone who was reading that? Um, like what, what did they 
understand that word to mean. The actual Greek word, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Before we, like, obviously when I read it for the first time, I knew what baptism was. I think, I think, if I remember correctly, because this was always, uh, this was always pushed at liberty, that word really meant to, to submerge something. Okay, so it was kind of a literal description. Yes, okay. yes, yeah. Um, yeah, because that was their argument for why everybody needs to be dunked um, instead of sprinkled, you know, um, because it means submerge. Now, their sprinkling has cool biblical uh, connections, too. It was the blood of the heifer that was sprinkled in the, um, in the sanctuary, you know, so that's cool because then you have the same sort of sacrificial element appearing. But, yeah, no, it, it had this submerge, submerging aspect to it, yeah. Um, Still, still allowed. I think it. I think sprinkling developed because of persecution. It was harder to do baptisms out in the open in the river, you know, when you weren't supposed to be doing baptisms. So they were okay with the other ways in the Didache. Yes. By the time of the exactly. The Didache was written maybe one twenty, maybe maybe earlier. Yeah. But at least by 120, the Didache had been written. It's just an early Christian source. Uh, many attribute it to the apostles directly. I don't know if we have the proof to actually go hard on that claim, but it's um, it's an early source. And so the fact that other forms of baptism were being practiced shows it took. It was not some later development. It was very early that the church said, "Okay, sometimes we have to just sprinkle, and that's okay." Um, all right. So let's quickly talk about the Eucharist. Then I love this picture. Um, because this is really what's going on in the Mass. Uh, angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. Um, somebody, I put this on Twitter, and someone said, that's a really big altar party, and I responded, angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, to be exact. Um, so the Eucharist uh, has a lot of biblical themes, uh, has a lot of biblical themes to support it. Um, in Genesis 1, uh, God places man in the garden, well, Genesis 1 to 2, God places man in the garden, giving them food. He gives us food. Um, God sets up creation for us to be dependent on that creation for our life and sustenance. That's been true from the beginning. And since God is our creator, it's also a sign that we are dependent on God. We would starve without God's work. There's also an element of food that's uh, social, right? Um, uh, Especially in the ancient world. Uh, If you invited someone over to share a meal with you, like what Abraham does to his mysterious visitors, uh, before Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, there is a sense in which you're recognizing them as someone worthy to have life uh, because food was scarce then, right? It's not like today where we have an overabundance of food, at least in most places. Um, so, so there's a kind of social recognition in food. So God recognizes us as someone to, as, as, as those who are worthy of a certain kind of life, um, though our worthiness comes from our dependence on him. Uh, Genesis 3, the fall in the garden, is centered around the wrong type of food, the wrong type of eating. We sought to satisfy our desires, our longings, our hungers with things other than what God has provided for us. In fact, we use that food to try and become like God, um, but it was ultimately unsuccessful. So sacramental food has a sort of sacramental quality to it. Um, you know, and, and you see that in the tree themselves. One of the trees gives life. One of the trees gives a knowledge of good and evil. And there is no undoing the eating. Um, in Genesis 9, it should be, in, it's interesting to note, what's the first thing Noah does after the, after the flood? You remember? 
He plants something. He plants a vineyard. And he makes wine. And he gets really drunk. And then there's this really interesting story. By the way, my theory about this story, because people ask, what's the sin? You know, the one son is cursed. What did he do? And some people think it's because he maybe made fun of his dad. His dad passed out drunk and naked. You know, like, what is... But the Hebrew word for, uh, for your father's nakedness tended to actually speak about his wife. So it's possible that the sin there is a, is a sort of maternal incest, in which case Ham would have been the product of that relationship in which he receives the curse. That's, my, that's how I read that, but I mean... There's no hard evidence, but there is a lot of linguistic evidence to say that's probably what happened. But the point is that, uh, that Noah overindulges in alcohol, um, and, and it reflects a kind of distorted relationship between us and creation, between us and food. Um, rather than use it as God intended, as a means of worship and thanksgiving, it's now abused and exploited. Of course, Genesis 18, we have, the, uh, we have Abraham sharing a meal with three divine visitors who symbolize the Holy Trinity. Um, and, uh, and again, the idea is he's having a meal with God. This is the epitome of friendship with God. You know, Abraham is a friend of God. Much has been made. There's a great book called um, The Jewish Roots of the Eucharist by Brandon Petrie. He's a Roman Catholic scholar. But it's a great book about the sacrificial lamb. And how the Eucharist and the sacrifice at Passover are really intimately linked with one another. In fact, St. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. And uh, 1 Corinthians is a very Eucharistic letter. So I, I have no doubt that's what he has in his mind when he says that. Um, Brant uh, Petrie. Yeah, P-I-T-R-E. Yeah, Oh, do you? Yeah, oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yes. He has another book that came out recently, maybe Jewish Roots of Mary, something like that. Mm-hmm. But I'd like to read that. I haven't read that one, but I have read the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist and was very, I thought it was very good. Um, that's cool that you follow him. He is very smart. He's a student of uh, Scott Hahn's, I think. Um, Scott Hahn is another one of those uh, Catholic Bible scholars who I think is really sharp. Um, but in the, in the Exodus, you know, you have the idea of the Passover lamb uh, being very important and something that's relived every year in Judaism, you know, um, so, so super important. Um, and then finally, you know, Jesus himself institutes the Last Supper, a meal between himself, God, and his friends. And the content of the meal, we're told, is his sacrifice, flesh, and blood. Um, this is why, too, we read an essay about this a couple of weeks ago, uh, why we drink the wine and eat the bread separately, or why they're separated from each other. That is a sacrificial act to separate blood from body. Um, just like the, the sacrificial animals were slaughtered and then their blood would have been drained and used for ritual purposes. So you have a sort of split between the two. So in the Eucharist, there is a split. Though at the same time, uh, this is why, like during a pandemic, you might only receive the bread instead of receiving the bread and the wine. There is a sense in which the whole Christ is present in even a single drop or a single crumb of the Eucharist. It's not a spatial thing. Jesus isn't more present in the wine if you have a bigger sip. 
you didn't get more Jesus. You know, it doesn't quite work that way. I had a Roman Catholic friend who did talk that way one time, and it was very disturbing. I go to Mass on Fridays because just nobody else is there, and I get more of the blood, and it's just, you just, oh, it's so great to just drink more of the blood. It's like, it's weird, man. Concomitance. So, um, so through the eating of this sacred meal, then, that Jesus shares with his friends, all of us, the fall is overturned. We feast on the new and better fruit from the new and better tree of life, which is the cross itself. Um, I, the guy, I'm doing a thesis on a, 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 a theologian named Hugh of St. Victor, who's medieval. And he's got this beautiful allegorical reading of Noah's Ark. And he makes Noah's Ark symbolic of everything, basically. And at the center, he, he has this intricate diagram of the Ark. And at the center, he puts a beam that holds the whole thing up. And that is the tree of life. It's the center of everything. Um, so that is the center of our life together is the tree of life. And the Eucharist uh, restores food to its proper place then. It's the realm of worship, thanksgiving to God. Um, as we eat this food, we become uh, like Adam and Eve originally prior to the fall in that we, uh, we uh, receive divine blessing and sustenance through food. And the final biblical thing to point out about the Eucharist is in Revelation 19, which is when the redeemed participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Heaven is a feast. There's a really good book called um, The Supper of the Lamb by Robert Farrar Capon. If you like to cook, it's part cookbook, part spiritual memoir, but it's really beautiful and kind of talks about food and um, all these things. I love it. It's a great book. So the Eucharist then is a foretaste. It's a promise. Uh, it's an invitation. It's a window into this eschatological meal that we have with God. Um, everything, every time we approach the altar, we anticipate heaven and even participate in heaven. Heaven is an eternal Eucharistic feast. Uh, Christy asked the question last week, why is the area over the altar blue? That's why, because we're being brought up into that feast. So the biblical witness points us to embrace the Eucharist as the pinnacle of our worship, but it can only fulfill all of the biblical images about food and worship, if A, Christ is truly present, and B, there is a real sacrifice that's taking place. Now, this has been one of the, uh, uh, one of the more debated topics out of the Reformation, um, because in the medieval period, it seems like, now the Roman Catholic Church never officially taught this, but it seems like you had priests saying, or, or lay people saying, every time we say the Mass, Christ is re-crucified on the cross. Well, that doesn't make sense because first St. John tells us Christ died once for all for the sins of the world. So we don't want to repeat the sacrifice. It's not, um, it's not happening over and over and over again. Um, and the Roman Catholic Church clarified this later just to make sure everybody was on the same page. So you wouldn't find Roman Catholics who believe this now. Um, and like I said, it was really a popular level thing at the time. But basically what we can say um, T.S. Eliot, in his poem, The Four Quartets, has this beautiful line when he's talking about Good Friday, and he calls it the timeless moment, the timeless moment. Um, there is a sense in which the cross happened in time, obviously, because it was an event, and events happen in time. There's also a sense in which the cross is the first thing in God's plan, that it is, it's the, theologically prior to everything else that happens. So, for example... How are people in the Old Testament saved? Well, through the cross, um, working itself backwards through time. So you have kind of the cross being the center of everything, and out of the cross comes salvation to all. 
Um, and so, uh, so when we say the Mass, it's not Christ being crucified again, but that moment that happened on Calvary is being made present for us in the Mass. So again, it's not a repetition, it's a representation. And we know that this is the case because Christ, as our mediator, as our intercessor, is pleading the cross with the Father throughout eternity. So, uh, and also we see this in Revelation too, when, uh, when, uh, when he's described as the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. The timeless moment. So we get to participate in this beautiful mystery, taking up into uh, this heavenly reality, the, the heavenly sanctuary, the author of Hebrews calls it, when the mass is said. Um, and that's why, and it's also cool to think about, uh, because of how time zones work, uh, somewhere in the world, a mass is being said pretty much at any moment in time. Um, so that's, that's always a cool thing to think about. Um, so we can say that, so, and, and out of the Reformation, a few different theories came about about how Christ is present in the Eucharist. But basically, I think uh, the, sort of, uh, the sort of traditional Anglican view would be this, that, uh, that, the, that the presence of Christ is objective. It's there in the bread and the wine, whether you are receiving it worthily or not. It's not, it's not there if you believe enough. It's there already because it's, because, um, because it's a sacrament. It's a sign of what is occurring. But we also need to be careful that we don't participate in it unworthily, as St. Paul says, because he does say he does take this very seriously, um, that, that uh, basically saying that if you participate unworthily, you're eating and drinking damnation to your soul. So again, this is where confession is important, why we say a prayer of confession before we go to the table at all, because we need to be... Uh, we need to be cleansed prior to receiving. Yeah, uh, Father Jim said that. Oh, did he? Oh, yeah, he said the thing that you, right. if you receive communion and you have a mortal sin out there, you're damned to hell. Yes, like, oh, yes. Yeah, he said that before we took it. Yes, yes, yes. So it's good, it's good, it's a good reminder. Um, in, the, in the older prayer book, we have the exhortation, which is read on the first Sunday of Advent, Trinity Sunday, and maybe the first Sunday of Lent. And it's basically that. It's much wordier and a little bit beats around the bush more uh, than Father Jim does. Um, but uh, but it's, uh, it's direct. And it's basically saying, hey, get your act together. Uh, analyze yourself before you come receive communion. And, and you know, before, leave your gift at the altar if you, have, uh, if, you have, if you know your brother has something against you. Go work it out and then come receive communion. Um, so we have to take that very seriously. Um, but then the reason we take that seriously is precisely because he is really and objectively present in the elements um, that we partake. And so we, don't, we, we want to uh, be respectful of that. Um, so um, just to conclude quickly, because I know we're over our time, uh, this is a, this is a um, quote from a hymn that St. Thomas Aquinas wrote, Therefore we before him bending this great sacrament revere, Types and shadows have their ending, for the newer rite is here. Faith, our outward sense befriending, makes our inward vision clear. Um, and this is what we sing um, at the benediction of the Blessed Sacrament, which we'll do when Bishop Chad is here, which I'm very excited for on Saturday. Um, do what? Playing chant? Uh, we are going to have the choir. I, I think we're going to do chant. Yeah, cool. yeah, yeah.
this is a beautiful song. Uh, you can look it up on YouTube or whatever. A choir's doing it. It's great. But our, Andrea taught our choir this. Uh, it's in the hymn book. It is. It's number 200. Yes. I was actually surprised it was in the hymnal uh, just because it's by Thomas Aquinas. But uh, I was happy. Happy it was there. So yeah, it'll be good. I'm very excited. And of course, benediction of the Blessed Sacrament is a recognition of that real and objective presence. Um, some people will say, oh, that's we shouldn't do that. It's, um, it's too Romish or something like that. But uh, if we really believe that Christ is objectively and really present in the bread and the wine, then it makes sense that we would want to revere the bread and the wine and that we would believe that uh, being in the presence of the bread and the wine that's been consecrated is, uh, is a beneficial thing for us. So in benediction, what happens is that the host is put in a monstrance, um, which is sort of a gold uh, case for it, and, uh, and the people kneeling uh, sit there, and the, and the priest or the bishop takes the monstrance, and, they, and he blesses the people with it. Um, so it's, it's a short service. It's only 10 or 15 minutes long, but it's a really wonderful time to meditate and to prepare for receiving the Eucharist on, on, at a Mass. So if you haven't been to one, it's really, it's cool. I hadn't, somehow I had not made it to one until this summer. And I went and it was, wow, this is great. We need to do that more. So in baptism, we are united to the death and resurrection of Christ. And in the Eucharist, that union is strengthened and brought to perfection by continual participation in the sacrifice of Christ for us and for our salvation given to us through the real and objective presence of Christ's body and blood through the symbols of bread and wine. All the other sacraments, the other five that we didn't talk about tonight, participate in these realities in their own ways. You know, confession is that application of baptism to the Christian who needs that grace of forgiveness of sins. Confirmation is the strengthening of the Holy Spirit in us so that we can, uh, we can contribute our gifts to the church. Um, marriage is the binding of a husband and a wife the way that Christ and the church are united to each other. So all the sacraments play into this sacramental worldview in different ways. They're not necess- the other five are not necessary for salvation, uh, but they are, they are incredible ways of uh, fleshing out, so to speak, no pun intended, uh, that beautiful mystery at the heart of our faith.